In today's episode, we take an unconventional turn through Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed as it pertains to learning organizations and coaching. Using Freire's critique of the banking model of education, we discuss why employee development should be akin to good product development within a software shop. To join the conversation, follow us on Twitter at GuildmasterC. Check out our blog at www.guildmasterconsulting.com blog, or subscribe to and comment on our YouTube channel. Simply search Guildmaster Consulting in quotes and you'll find us. Now, welcome to Somehow We Manage, the podcast for software engineering managers. This is Ashley Graham and... This is John Graham. And we are the co-founders of Guildmaster Consulting. Uh, all right, John, so I want to launch in here uh, because you've written a series of blogs on learning organizations and then most recently coaching. And so it's been on my mind, this whole notion that a company can be a locus for failing better, for tight feedback loops that help us make directional changes, uh, for even something as tactical as successful onboarding, right? That a company could help foster that is like, why is that such a difficult thing to to expect? But, you know, I've been at companies where it's really hard to get onboarding right, especially in software shops. And I was reading recently this uh, work called Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, and it talks a lot about this banking model of education. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. And then I want to I want to hear kind of your thoughts on how it impacts learning organizations or even your coaching model. Sure. Okay. So this work, I, I'm going to just focus on one part of it. I highly recommend the entire book. Now he's he's influenced by a lot of existentialist philosophers, and I would say he has in turn influenced a lot of liberation philosophy and theology. But he's thinking in a context as someone who himself did not do well in school about the failures of education. Primarily, he's thinking about teachers who treat education like a series of deposits for recipients, hence the banking model of education. Like, all right, I'm going to give you this factoid or this set of things to memorize, and it's your time to receive it. It's not an interactive model. Now, we could critique this as like, you don't really understand economics. Economics is incredibly interactive, but like just the banking system itself of like, I have entrusted in you this thing that I've received. Now is your turn to receive it whole and multiply it somehow. And in this model, there's not really consideration of nuance, of context, certainly not of contradiction. It's not a critical engagement with what you're learning. It's purely, it's almost like digesting processed food or pre-processed food. In fact, I think he's influenced a lot by Simone Weil and Jean-Paul Sartre's understanding of digestion, where it's not... A healthy relationship to something or a critical relationship with something or an interactive one. And therefore, like for him, this is problematic because you can't actually resist, you you know, the powers that be. You can't, uh, a teacher becomes another authority figure who has it figured out, who's wealthy and you're poor and you need to kind of... sets a really bad example right, and precedent. And right, like, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you're the poor one coming to me. I'm the wealthy one with all the knowledge. Here you go. And he, he goes into something that I think is really interesting for a political moment, talking about just how easy it is for people who maybe feel poor or who have been told they're poor, whether education-wise or literally, to... There's a mindset. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And it's how do they act? And, and he was saying how easy it is for them to just gravitate toward a charismatic leader because there's this model where you don't critically engage what you're learning, you just receive it whole. And there's a kind of appeal to it because you feel like you're accumulating 
something like you're getting some of the power and you're like you're investing in your bank account something but it's it's not like you're not actually able to critically engage the world or your life or accept ambiguities and how how awful that is for true education Mm -hmm. okay that was a long way to go about this but I, i was just thinking about it because i was thinking about really unhealthy power dynamics in learning and how that infects learning organizations and how to resist that at a company. For example, like onboarding, you know, you come in and you're the impoverished one, right? You're like, I I don't know anything about this new system and I'm just supposed to sit here and have someone tell me about it. Like, how do you actually have onboarding that's interactional? And that says, actually, you as a new hire have the most to offer us right now because you have fresh eyes. You're coming in here with a wealth of perspective and, and freshness that we benefit from. So onboard us, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like turn this around and tell us what we're doing wrong here. It's a very interactive model, mm-hmm. right? But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but I'd love to s- unpack this further as it reflects on your own interest in learning organizations and coaching. I mean, it brings up a lot of ideas on your onboarding mm. uh, specifically, right? One great way to get somebody familiarized with the code base is just to start kind of one large peer review Hmm. Uh, have them engage with it, ask questions, because you you run a profiler to find the slow parts of your code. What is the, what is the profiler for the unmaintainable parts? It's somebody who would need to maintain it, who doesn't know. And they're going to tell you what's the hardest to understand. Mm -hmm. Now, one person is just going to be one measurement, but you'll see patterns over time over what people tend to have trouble wrapping their minds around and you can use that to say oh we need to focus our refactoring efforts there i i want to know in this model how does education survive the age of google facts don't matter anymore right we can all get them immediately yeah it's not a bank anymore it's like yeah we printed all the money yeah (laughs) right no exactly and he was he was writing obviously pre-google but but exactly it it doesn't like knowing how to do something is very different than knowing about something. You can ha- accumulate knowledge about things, but knowing how to interact with a system or critically engaging it so that you can point out something that might need to be improved, like that for him is the basis of learning, being able to ask questions and pick it apart and assume that the teacher is the student and the student is the teacher. Which again, reminds me of what you were saying with the onboarding process or even something like mob programming or pair programming where like, it's it's not clear anymore who's the most knowledgeable or least knowledgeable because you're both getting eyes on something and seeing different things that benefits both of you, right? Like in mob programming, for instance, you, you realize really quickly what could be automated because you're, you're performing live how tedious something is. The model of education for engineers is going to be this way to figure out how you can interact sooner. I think this actually brings up something we were discussing earlier in education, how many methods by which, you know, teachers and uh, instructors use that are truly valid from a statistical standpoint. Mm -hmm. If you do this task, Mm -hmm. you will have learned this concept. And I know we were we were talking about in a kind of a critical way, something like a group project or, you know, a high school diorama. (laughs) Did did you learn about (laughs) the topic or did you learn how to make a diorama, which may have been the topic? If this is in an art class or something, we're talking about crafts, but 
so often we actually seem to optimize the wrong thing in a lot of education. Mm. Uh, we try and keep people busy. Mm-hmm. And these yeah. things are very good at keeping people busy. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll learn some stuff along the way. Who knows? I think you can see something similar in hiring processes. We give software engineers coding challenges from, you know, programming 101 mm. that nobody remembers anymore. Nobody remembers how to code up a quick sort off the top of their head. <laughs> now, for anybody unaware of the history here, and I think a lot of people, they're getting into coding and they think Google or Facebook, they have it all figured out. But what happened was these companies used to be a lot younger, a lot smaller, and they were still in the same area. And they hired, not exclusively, but heavily out of Stanford and other schools. So they needed a challenge that a computer science student would be able to tackle. Hmm. So of course they used a data structure or an algorithm challenge. Hmm. They haven't changed that since then and people forgot where it came from. So now everybody thinks the true hackers, the true geniuses in the world just happen to know how to code, you know, inverting a red black tree better than anyone else. (laughs) Even though we all know that's not true. Right. That, that reminds me of something actually by Franz Rosenzweig, who much earlier than the writing, the pedagogy, the press model, was saying, like, it's an unhealthy kind of thinking to wrest something out of the stream of experience and, like, try and make it this object that people have to interact with in, its, in itself. Like, like you were saying with this code challenge, like, it's totally forgotten the context in which it operated, in which it was useful, in which it was valid. Right. And that's what's happened is like you 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 take it away from the validity of the context. And so it's not actually proving what you want it to prove anymore. It's not proving that you went to school and learned about this Mm -hmm. and you actually attended classes. Okay, we can hire you. But it's like it's proving that someone maybe has book smarts or, you know, it's it's proving someone used uh, hacker rank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Leak code recently. (laughs) They put in their time on the bank and pulled out that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They did their time in hacker rank and happened to practice the challenge. That's all it's really proving. Yeah. And it is still the oppressed, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. It's people either on the outside of programming or perceived to be on the outside of programming Mm. um, who have been told by people in power, uh, we've all heard of Google, Mm. that this is what real programmers do. Mm. Um, And it's still, and nobody even really set up to do this, but it's still, that's, that's the culture of like, these are the real companies. If you're not in these companies, you aren't a real programmer. You're just kind of faking it. Hmm. or pretending, Hmm. Um, and the real companies do this. And so to prepare for that, these are the facts that matter. These are the important facts. Hmm. But none of it matters because nobody nobody remembers the context. Right. I think there's an XKCD where basically all of math is somebody working their whole life on a problem and then spending the rest of their life convincing everybody, uh, you know, no, this is true. All to have a teacher in high school 200 years later say, this is obvious. Why can't you kids see this? And it's like all the context is missing. Yeah. All the interactive components of that information of that information. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I I just thought it was a really interesting question is like, how do you avoid this model in an organization where it's like you have to prove that you've learned about something like there are some learning organizations where it's truly just competency exams or oh you have a certification in this programming language or whatever the case may be but like how do you get genuine learning happening in an organization it's difficult because in in thinking of okay are we gonna nobody 
nobody's going to make you do a diorama to get a certification. <laughs> yeah. But there's still, I think we kind of err too far the other way. Mm. Uh, certification is the beginning, not the end. Mm -hmm. the, the simple fact is, and this is incredibly unsexy, flashcards work for retention. We know we know how to build retention. Mm -hmm. uh, to comprehend something, it's nice to be able to you know retain it. Mm. Um, building kind of uh, journals and graphical models where you you start to relate concepts with each other is great for comprehension. We're still not to application. Mm -hmm. the The problem is once you get to comprehension, the only thing you can do is start to do. You have right. to do. Yeah. You have to do, and no amount of further coursework is going to replace that. Yeah. Um, what is that? The I think we were just talked about that thought experiment, the the black and white room oh, argument, yeah. where somebody has been born and raised in, in a room without color and has been given all the books we have on color. Does mm -hmm. that person understand color? No, of course they don't. Right. Because what you cognitively know and right. then what you physically experience are two different right. categories. Exactly. Experience is different than knowledge. Uh, and so like when we think about it like a knowledge worker, it's really an, ex an experience worker. I mean, yes, okay, people expect that they go to college and get this degree, but not so much anymore. I mean, that's not really valid in programming circles. That hasn't been for a long time. It's like you don't have to have a degree in programming to be excellent at it. It's it's meant to be a kind of a democratic... It's not meant to be. Well... It is. It is. <laughs> that really makes be. some people upset. Oh, really? Oh, well, okay. Okay. But I mean, I would say like that is opposing this pedagogy of the oppressed, that software engineering inherently resists that in that it's supposed to be you're interacting as much as possible and start in doing, like doing and getting feedback quickly. And not to get too political, but we need people doing and interacting if we're going to live in a functioning democracy, mm -hmm. because in a democracy, the people are ultimately the leaders. And you can't have them thinking, A, that I'm not qualified to be a leader because mm -hmm. they they were born and raised in this authoritarian environment. Mm -hmm. Or B, thinking sheer number of facts, whether or not they're true, mm. makes makes them yeah. qualified to lead either. We need Experience. schools, experiences, <laughs> schools that generate good experience, mm. which you can do in, in a, a good learn, learning organization. You're going to value a lot more mentoring and you're going to value journeyman or journey person, whatever you want to say, kinds of experiences where I'm going to make sure that you're put on certain projects and rotations that are just a little bit out of reach for mm -hmm. you. So you'll have to grow, but you'll grow via experience. Mm -hmm. And it's not because fact-based learning or knowledge-based learning isn't enough. It's right. that we already covered that. Right. We, yeah. we went as far as we could go there. And I'm not going to pretend that you can learn our system through flashcards. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you need to eventually dive in and start trying to solve problems with it. Yeah. That's that's something you can do. There's part of your, your every individual contributor's learning journey is going to be different projects, different rotations. And you're going to have to curate that and think what's next for this individual. Mm. So it's, it's pretty hard. Mm. It's difficult. Yeah. But it will speed things up. And this this makes money, right? Because if you have to wait two years, which is the you know, the rule of thumb that I've heard, for somebody to truly get up to speed, and at some of these fang companies the average retention's two years. So <laughs> right. right. So um, the banking model is bankrupt yeah. at that point. Um, if you have to wait for two years, that's that's a long time to invest in somebody. And if you can do it more effectively by ensuring that if there's anything 
that you just need to know we're going to use the most effective means. You don't want to learn by experience something that somebody could just tell you. And then once you get to experience, you need to have those curated experiences so that each one is new and teaching you something. Mm -hmm. You want to get to experience-based learning as fast as possible. And you do that by, you know, bootstrapping from, from other instruction methods. But those, by no means, are those where you want to stop. Yeah. And I personally, in my life, really only discovered how great math could be on my own. If anything, right, and I think this is true of a lot of people, mm -hmm. traditional schooling made me hate it. Yeah. If you know the story that the guy spent his whole life trying to find this proof that the teacher's now telling you is obvious, you realize some math problems can be really hard, but you know that there's an answer. And it's about trying new things mm -hmm. and talking to people and experimenting and thinking about it. And it's a puzzle. It's, it's the yeah. most challenging puzzle you can find. If you look at math that way, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. It's a video it's a game. game. Yeah. It's a game. Yeah. And, but if you look at math of just like, this is obvious, why don't I get it? And that doesn't even teach anyone to be more effective in the workforce. It's just, we've inherited these, these methods and we'll just assume that they're correct. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of coming back to the, the pedagogy of the oppressed. I mean, that is the oppressive mode of education because it feels like you've got to beat yourself over the head. You know, this, this talk of, oh, it's obvious, like Here's this object. Just receive it. Hold it in your hand. Now you have it. Now you get it. Like comprehension is viewing all sides of something as if it were an object, you know, that you could easily just carry with you instead of it being something you interact with and, and mold and shapes you in return. And yeah. so I, I was thinking about it because there are power dynamics inherent, not only in onboarding, but also beyond. I mean, here's the thing is all of that trying new things, experimenting, getting on a project that slowly grows you is not different than what the organization should be doing in general, right? Yeah. Like, to be an agile workplace, you have to have that built in. It's almost like onboarding never ends. You're you're always... Uh, if you're competitive, it shouldn't right, be. Right, right, exactly. Because what you learned is no longer as relevant because right. everything's better now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was just, I was thinking about, uh, though, the, the power dynamics that, kind of stop that. Um, we've mentioned psychological safety before um, in a previous podcast, I believe. And it's it's kind of a truism of Agile that if you can get anything right, get the psychological safety part right, because then you can actually have the comfortability to fail and to learn and to try smaller things instead of trying to be impressive with like, I'm going to tackle this big problem. You know, yeah. I think getting some of the power dynamics addressed is also important. Um, certainly that's what the text I was reading would say. Uh, and I, I was thinking about it too, in terms of coaching, because for some, when they hear coaching, they hear a power dynamic of like, I've got things figured out. I'm going to come in and tell you how to do things. Same with consulting for that matter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's again, this banking model of education where I've got I've got the riches. Let me share them with you. Yeah. <laughs> but for you, coaching is not that. Like, talk a little bit more about what coaching means for you when you say, "Hey, would you would you like some coaching as a manager?" The you know, I use the term coach really borrowed from I would say sports, mm. and I think you know that's where it came from. The best pitcher on a baseball team is not the pitching coach. Right. It's the pitcher. Yeah. Right. So this idea that. Uh, that the coach has any sort of power or real fact base better than the person doing things doesn't make a lot of sense. 
And I, I say this, and we're not necessarily advertising our own services. As a good manager, you should be coaching your staff. Right. And one of the biggest things that comes into coaching a technical staff is who's the best engineer. Hmm. And a lot of companies, uh, I believe, do this wrong by attempting to pr promote the best engineer into management. To people management. Or empowering the, the people manager with high-level engineering decisions. Hmm. I've been on a number of interviews mm -hmm. <laughs> when, mm -hmm. when I'm more opportunistic. And they would, you know, state expectations. You're going to need to make calls here. It's like, I am more than capable of making calls. But why would you be uncomfortable if I instead developed a design system mm -hmm. where I would consult, you know, the right people for this? Oh, well, they need to know that you're in charge. <laughs> and this was coming from the recruiter. Right. Uh, at some at some. Yeah. Popular companies. It's some popular companies. Yeah. So I don't get it. I know what we're talking about might seem airy-fairy, and at times it might seem a little kumbaya. Oh, yeah, we can all just get along, but this is the real world, and we need we're, we need to be competitive. You need to compete with your competitor, not each not other. Not each other, yeah. What, we all want to get rich, and yeah. this is the best way to get rich. And why is no one doing it? Yeah. Um, it's Too many people aren't concerned about getting maximizing wealth they're more concerned about maximizing their piece of the wealth hmm. and that's where we get into a lot of conflicts yeah but on coaching you know you're you have some experience if you wanted to go apply for a job as a pitching coach and you've never thrown a ball in your life well no you're not going to get that job <laughs> right um you can't just read about it you can't just read about <laughs> it um so you need to have some experience mm -hmm. but the thing that you're you're really coming to the table with is you're an objective third party. Mm -hmm. Somebody's saying, hey, I need you to watch me and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Because they've, just as we talked about, you get to the end of flashcards as fast as possible mm -hmm. so you can start to learn from experience. They've gotten to the end of what they can teach themselves. Mm -hmm. And they need cameras on them and people noting things. And these people aren't experienced just in the thing, they're experienced in coaching. Mm -hmm. And so they know in, in the sports world, they would know the common failures. And if they're a good coach, they would know the right cues. A really great coach and that I like out of sports is in powerlifting, Mark Ripito, and he knows the cues to tell somebody to, you know, get under the bar when you're doing uh, a press. And it just, that triggers something in your mind to somehow lurch forward. Mm -hmm. You're trying to pull the bar so that it's over you. Uh, and he knew that cue. There's a lot of different things he could say, but he knows exactly what to scream at you because, you you know, blood's yeah. rushing through your right. ears. You can barely hear. He knows exactly what to scream at you to correct some flaw that may be the one that you struggle with. Right. And what's important about a coach is they're not telling you like five things while you're... Yeah. <laughs> You've got where you're holding uh, yeah. the, all it's this agile. weight. Yeah. It's agile. Yeah, It's exactly. iterative. Yeah. Iterative. You, you find the thing the student is most likely to succeed at first that will also change their lives the most. And mm -hmm. so you're, you're trying to optimize in this two-by-two two sort of matrix. Yeah. You're trying to figure out what is holding you back that you can overcome. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a different thing each time because every time they make a little bit of progress, more things are within their reach. Right. And I like what you said. It's kind of like the progressive loading metaphor. Yes. Um, but it, it reminds me that like just as you're doing with clients, trying to find the most valuable next feature, you're, you're trying to optimize for value with your internal clients at the company, like with employees. I love that 
companies that think about it in terms of employee experience, just like, as they uh, yeah. do user yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, or developer experience. DevX is really popular right now. Yeah. But sorry, you, you were about to say something. Oh, or platform teams. Platform where, teams, yeah. Where your client is still some other engineer. Yeah. Tell, sorry, for those who, who may not know what that's from, the platform teams. Platform team is one of the three main team types and team topologies. Mm -hmm. They said that uh, there's basically streamlined teams, which I see that as a value stream team. You're producing features for some external customer. Mm -hmm. Platform teams, which uh, they may disagree with this take, just a streamlined team, but the stream's inside the company. And I say that because if your platform teams don't have product people on them, you're going to have a bunch of pissed off engineers. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah sorts of uh, thinking apply inside is outside. Mm -hmm. You're actually lucky in that you can go ask the client directly and they know how to talk code with you mm -hmm. on what they want and what yeah. they need. But if you aren't going out to talk to your client and your platform team, your platform is probably not going to get used. Right. And what often occurs is, oh, well, we'll just force them. <laughs> which is a monopolistic way of thinking like yeah you are it goes now back the... to that banking model of yeah. like you receive this uh deposit you are the recipient you do not get to interact in any way you're welcome <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> i'm sharing my riches with you yeah yeah oh sorry and then the, the third team i guess the um, enabling, enabling team yeah you can also, another way to remember these is the enabling team is almost like selling you services okay. and your platform team is selling you goods mm. and your streamlined team is selling something outside. So the platform team provides a thing mm. to your internal developers, an API, like an API. Yeah. a tool, uh -huh. something that can be reused and helps helps build capital for the company. Right. Uh, again, I think we all want to be rich this is a unique definition of capitalism, but if we're talking about the accumulation of capital, what is capital? Capital is equipment. Mm -hmm. It's it's machines that do work for us, that uh, leverage our labor, that, right. that, that make every unit of input bigger. Mm -hmm. What's that going to look like inside a company? You're going to build stuff for yourself so that your developers are more efficient and effective. Yeah. Why this is mind-blowing... <laughs> Uh, when, again, we're, we're supposed to be quote-unquote capitalists here and, like, accumulate, ca go go make some. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think so many organizations get stuck in the labor. It, or what you were saying earlier, where, where busyness is an indicator of... of value. Value, right. Um, instead of, you know, how are we actually getting better and smarter and faster? And everyone says that, like, oh, we're going to be better, faster, smarter, blah, blah, blah. But, like, how do you actually do that I mean, the preconditions for that are, you know, that you have coaching as part of your company, just on the managerial level. You have people who are kind of a disinterested third party, uh, you know, not your colleague telling you how to pitch better as a fellow pitcher, because that can be fraught with other things. But like someone who's who's genuinely interested in your growth and finding what one small thing you can do next. But it also means your product people are also thinking what one small thing can we deliver next to the client. And it requires that um, your engineers aren't afraid to fail, uh, yeah. to be perpetually onboarding, you know, to, yeah. to always be interacting and realizing that knowledge is interactional. And it means messing up something you know yeah. every now very often means messing up something and figuring out that way. Because, I mean, whether I like it or not, true education for me, it's often painful. I can accumulate knowledge. That's not painful at all you, for me. Yeah, you have got to walk away <laughs> feeling stupid. 
yeah. as the cue that you're about to learn something. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I celebrate think... feeling stupid because yeah. you're about to learn something. It is. Yeah. It's suffering. <laughs> Especially, I mean, through experience. I mean, yeah. It's pain. I mean, it goes back to weightlifting, like you were saying. Like, yeah. You, true. You've got to kind of rip the muscle a little bit to, to grow it. And so Very so. true. Very true. Um, so I think having the right kind of pain <laughs> and having the psychological safety to have those painful moments be celebratory, you know, be like, yeah. oh, that hurts, but we learned something yeah. Yeah. and now we won't do it again. We're going to fail better. Yeah. Um, anyway, did you have anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up? I saw our little one is is waking here. Um, this was just kind of a freewheeling conversation on on education and the and the learning organization. No, I think this was great. Uh, I appreciated learning more about. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if you would like to hear more from us, don't hesitate to contact us at highguildmasterconsulting.com to help guide what we talk about in our podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at guildmasterc, and you can see our blog at www.guildmasterconsulting.com slash blog. You can also find us on LinkedIn and on YouTube. Just search Guildmaster Consulting in quotes, and we'll be there. If, you, if you're on YouTube right now, do that uh, whole share, like, and subscribe. Thing. Oh, yeah. Hit that, pound that like button. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>